So welcome to the Quality of Mind Transforming Business podcast. This is where we explore the new game-changing understanding that can unlock new levels of performance, resourcefulness, and well-being in the workplace. Join us if you want to be part of the new breed of leaders in business. Join us if you're fed up with the conventional echo chamber. And join us if you want to be part of the new revolution in understanding how the mind works and recognize that we are more than just our psychology and that that can lead to better results. Hello and welcome to the Quality of Mind Transforming Business podcast series. And this episode, I have the pleasure of being joined from, by Molly Gordon from Shaboom. And Molly, who will introduce herself in a moment, has a wealth of experience in the world of uh, coaching, mentoring, and developing other coaches. And she's also been a coach of entrepreneurs and leaders. So welcome, Molly, and thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks, Pierce. It's great to be here. Well, Molly, first of all, could you give people just um, a little nutshell about your I guess your journey, your career today, and how come we're talking now? Okay. Well, I came to coaching in January of 1996. Uh, I had been doing a kind of undefined variety of uh, business consulting slash therapy. My clients all seemed to want to come see me for an hour a week, and I used to joke, is this therapy or what? And one of them sent me an article about coaching uh, and said, this is what you do. And I looked it up and I said, I'll be darned, that's what I do. Uh, I went on to get formal training and have been uh, affiliated with the International Coach Federation tradition of coaching and standards and ethics for coaching ever since, 96. Uh, As time went on... uh, I was always really interested in why things were either hard or easy for myself and for my clients. And I loved making things easier for people or, or finding, helping them find ways that things were easier, uh, smoother, uh, opening the way, not just to take work out, but to open up possibilities. I loved that. And in around uh, 2010, 2011, I came across uh, the three principles, uh, Sidney Banks's work, and I went, holy cow, this, this explains what really makes things easy or hard for people. And it made me appreciate coaching and all the things I'd learned over the years as a coach. But it was like understanding uh, the physics or the, the underlying mechanics of coaching. And it helped me see why certain kinds of effort in certain areas didn't produce much leverage, and other seemingly really light touches produced huge results. Mm. And it, it's really interesting listening to you because I, I've had a similar journey um, in that I was in what I would call conventional coaching for, for quite a yep. few years, um, working with clients and then came across the, these principles as you have and slowly but surely everything sort of fell into place about how come what I was doing was working and how come what I was doing wasn't working and it demystified it a lot and actually simplified it um, yeah. in, into how the system worked. 
um, to such an extent that all I wanted to talk to my clients about now was this these principles, which I know is um, the same for you. And you've been like me doing that for the last sort of seven, eight years, just working from this understanding, which I, I kind of nickname, you know, principles behind quality of mind, but it's, it's the principles that you're referring to of, of uh, the wonderful guy, Sidney Banks. Now, if you were to give, if people go, well, what, what is this? What, what is this thing that you two guys came across that demystified your coaching and increased the impact that you have? How would you describe it to someone who didn't really have much of a clue of what it was uh, yeah. to start with? How would you describe it? Well, you know, it changes all the time, but <laughs> the way I would probably do it today, that I will do it today, is that uh, when I started coaching, one of the things that really touched me was a statement that... Uh, Coaches believe that clients are whole capable and resourceful or whole creative and resourceful. Mm. And I loved working to facilitate or catalyze or release or uh, potentiate creativity, resourcefulness, and wholeness or well-being in my clients. What I saw in the principles is that that it makes a difference whether you know that's true or just think it's a nice way to look at people. Mm. It makes all the difference. I have pretty much always seen as a coach that an elusive quality called coaching presence is like the secret sauce or the magic, the fairy dust that makes a coach effective or not. And it now looks to me like the foundation of coaching presence is the knowledge, the insight that a client actually has the capacity to learn what they need to learn, grow the way they need to grow, change the way they need to change, and that nothing needs to be added for that to happen. Mm. And that conviction communicates on a lot of levels. I think it's compelling for clients to sit in the presence of that conviction and properly understood, it takes a lot off the coach's mind. Mm. So, so I'm hearing a difference there between you believing that clients are wholly resourceful, creative, resilient as a mantra and as a nice yep. thing to think, oh yeah, well, I'm going to believe everyone is, to yep. actually knowing that that is how the system works for every single human being, regardless to who they are, the age, gender, demographic, background, whatever. I mean, that's quite different. It may not sound different, but it's no. massively different to, to it's know massively that. different. <laughs> and the kinds of ideas that come to me as a coach, the kinds of questions, the kinds of observations, the kinds of conversations I have are profoundly different based on whether I'm believing or trying to believe that or resting in the knowledge of that. And what allows you now, uh, in the last sort of eight years, to know that as a, as a matter of principle of the system as, as opposed to just believe it. So w what do you know now about the human system that allows you to have that conviction rather than just kind of believe it like you did before? Yeah. I, I would have to characterize the change as an insight. And I, I wish I could give it a more, um, you know, action-oriented climb a ladder and you'll see this too answer. But I was listening to Sydney Banks one day and it's I I want to slow down and see if I can capture as closely as I can what it was like to have this insight. 
I'm listening to Sidney Banks, and to be perfectly honest, he's not making a lot of sense to me. <laughs> I mean, I've listened to a lot of spiritual teachers and, and psychological teachers over the years, and Sid just wasn't landing with me. And maybe it's partly because of that. I stopped trying so hard to make sense of him because he just wasn't make sense. And then he said something about trusting a feeling. And Piers, I can't account for why that phrase struck me. But I had this moment of recognition. I thought, I, I know. Molly Gordon, you do know what it's like to know what you know. You know what it's like to be in your groove. You know what it's like to be at home in yourself. Um, I'm fighting a sneeze here. <laughs> I'll bless you in advance. <laughs> I couldn't even get to the mute button. <laughs> no, that's okay. <laughs> I had the realization that throughout my life, I personally had had moments of being what I would call at home in myself, sure of myself in a very settled way, not in a ramped up way. And somehow I just got that that was a capacity that was built in, that that was not a result. It was like I had this uh, cascade of memories, instant replays, and none of those moments were the result of something that I'd done. They'd all been spontaneous uh, moments of insight, comfort, wisdom, effectiveness. And for the first time, I just thought, wow, if that's built in, I don't have to do anything to get there. Mm-hmm. And it actually took a while for me to, and I feel I'm still in process of seeing that that's true for everyone. I really saw that it's true for me because I could feel it and I had the memories. And it's been more of a process to truly see that it's true for everyone. I believe that it is. Mm. <laughs> and there's a very important difference that's threaded through this conversation between belief and seeing for yourself. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that's such a valid distinction because you mentioned the word insight there. You mentioned the word realization. And I, I never really appreciated what that was. I just heard them as words and they're kind of nice words. And oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't really know what feature of the, of the spiritual human system it was pointing to. The, the, the fact that we have the capacity for realization is what enables us to, if you like, see fresh, dissolve one view of the world, have another one, and therefore allows us to evolve, survive, and thrive. And the power of realization, not just what you have a realization about, but your capacity for, I'd never really appreciated. Yep. And, and even in the story of, of Sidney Banks, who referred to, who was a guy who wasn't looking to do any of this. Uh, he, he wasn't looking to be a, a guru. He wasn't looking to be a personal development or, you know, he just had a realization. And then you start to see, well, actually, they're quite ordinary. Yes. We, 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 we had them all the time, sometimes about, you know, little minor things like, well, shall I 
what should I do on the weekend? And, and sometimes on very big things about how the, even the system works, the, the mind yeah. works. And knowing that that is a capacity we all have, um, it, and it's kind of highly reliable but unpredictable, as Michael Neal says, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> knowing it exists and knowing it's how, how real change happens for people was a totally different way of looking at it for me. Um, knowing the system had it rather than right. me to do something with my mental strategies. Um, because I think most of us know it happens. We mm-hmm. see it turn up in ourselves and others, but didn't know how it worked. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, was that the same for you? I mean, did it give you clarity about how that ability worked for us, that that capacity worked for us? I'm not sure, uh, and this may be a semantic issue, I'm not sure it gave me clarity about how it worked in that, uh, but it gave me clarity that it worked. Okay. Yeah, nice. So it wasn't an explanation, it was more of a description. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I went, holy cow, this is reliable, as you say. Unpredictable in that the last few days I've been thinking about, it's like it, I've learned that most of the levers and buttons and dials that my clients and I have been pushing over the years aren't actually connected to anything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> And so, and and those levers, buttons, and dials are, to me, that the how. And it's like, I'm not any clearer about how to push those buttons and dials, but I'm much clearer that there are certain things that it's worth paying attention to and certain things that it's not worth paying attention to. And what would those things be then? So what would you say in, in a short version of that? What would they be? It's worth paying attention to, um, to how I feel insofar as how I feel gives me a sense of how clearly I'm thinking and how well I'm functioning. It is not worth paying attention to why I feel the way I do, because that's a moving target. Mm-hmm. It's not worth worrying myself about how I feel. So... Paying attention to uh, to how I feel as an indicator of how reliable, how clear, how creative my functioning is, my thinking is, and also doing my best, as best I can, noticing whether I'm mucking up the works. Because mm. there's a way in which if... Um, if human beings get caught up, when human beings get caught up in trying to manage how they feel and how they're doing, they add a lot of noise to the system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that noise, that static, can't help and can often complicate or mess up how things work. Mm. And so it's worth, worth it to me... Um, another way to say this to hopelessly mix metaphors, as I usually do, is to pay attention. I think it's worth paying attention to the difference between signal and noise. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, I, I often use a metaphor with my clients around, it's like we have a, the feeling system as a barometer. Yes. It's a feedback mechanism, but it's not telling us what I thought it was telling us. I thought it was telling us something about the outside world, about my yeah. circumstances, my events, my past, my future. Oh, no, no, no. This barometer is telling me one thing. It's telling me where my, where my 
aperture of my mind is in any moment, you know, yeah. how tuned into signal versus how tuned into noise I am. And it's mm-hmm. giving me really useful feedback on that, right? Mm-hmm. Now, and, and it's sentient. I can feel that feedback all the time if I tune in. But I, I for, you know, 30 odd years had blunted my barometer, right? It was like right. a Tonka toy version, you know, like it only had... <laughs> three positions on it, right? You think you're a stealth flat fighter, but really you're a Tonka tow truck. That's right. So I kind of could tell when I was really caught up and messed in my head and I could tell when I was like really clear, but I couldn't tell anything in between, right? So I wasn't really using that barometer and I was also using it as an indicator of the outside, the, the event, the situation, the past, the future, whatever. And to know that it's only telling me about my mind in this moment it's yeah. really helpful. And also what's even better is, is exactly what you said. It's not then telling you to go and mess and fix that. It's not right. telling you to pay attention to what your mind's up to and what you're feeling. It's, yeah. not, it's not saying, oh, by the way, red light, red light, go and fix your head, go and fix your head, go and fix the outside world. It's not telling you that. It's just giving you feedback, which enables you to have an awareness which seems to, if you don't try and fix it, just nudge the system back into that innate mm-hmm. capacity that we talked about. Yeah. It's a, a self-correcting yeah. system. It's a self-adjusting, uh, always changing system. And anything we do uh, can only add noise. Anything yes. we do to try to improve or fix the system can only add noise. Uh, one of my first big insights was that settling down is a really powerful thing. Mm. Like, and I used to hate the phrase settle down because it seems to me as a kid, people are always telling me to settle down. <laughs> and even as an adult, you know, I'd get really passionate about something and some patronizing idiot would say settle down. <laughs> I didn't like that, if you can't tell. But I realized that settle down actually is like this magic key to seeing more clearly, having more choices, uh, being more effective, and that settling down is a natural uh, function of the system, of the process that I am, that lefts, if I don't interfere with myself, if I don't interfere with my thinking, I don't interfere with my feeling, I will always and invariably default to a more settled down state. And that that's true of other people. And so when it comes to managing or leading, we don't have to make people settle down. It's just really useful to know that they will if we don't get in their way. Mm. And if they don't get in their way. Mm. And I think, you know, because some people can hear that phrase settle down as uh, not do anything or um, remove yourself from the situation and it could lead to apathy or inaction or whatever. But what we're referring to about settle down is, and actually there's there's another podcast in this series, which we talk about dispelling the high pressure, high performance myth that that you need to keep not settled in order to have high performance. Well, actually, it's the opposite. So, so settle down is when you just have that, uh, that, that spaciousness inside your mind to have a clarity of resourcefulness, performance, and well-being. It's not about sitting on the sofa and doing nothing, right? No. It's, it's not that kind of settle down. It's not like, yeah. it's not like oh, you know, chill out and do nothing. It's, it's, an, it's, a, it's a space we get into when, some people might call it flow um, or in the zone, 
but it's not, uh, the way I describe it, it's not revving up our conceptual mind. Right. So you, you don't have to think 50 miles. You don't have to think busy. You have to be busy-minded to do busy. It's yeah. a huge realization. Um, yes. A couple of years ago, I was coming out. I had had a, a cancer and I'd been kind of offline for a while. I hadn't had a busy schedule for a long time. And then two years ago, my schedule started to ramp up. And from working two or three days a week for three to five hours, one week I realized I'd been working for six days for nine or 10 hours. Hmm. And I realized that I didn't have to be busy-minded to be physically busy. I, I would go to bed at night or if I worked a 12-hour day, I had no problem turning it off. I just didn't keep it on. <laughs> it was just, but it was a revelation. I'd always thought I had to put mental effort and mental velocity into performance. It's, it's such a, you know, it's so normalized. And actually it's merit badged, you know. It's totally merit badged. It's like, oh, well, I get into the office early and I get into the office late and I, I'm always busy and I don't have much space for my lunch break because that means I'm not effective. Uh, you know, I, I, I see my bosses and people around me getting busier and busier and hundred emails is good. And, you know, and, and, and it's, it's invisibly normalized as the way to get better results. Um, and it looks like people that don't play that game aren't in the rat race properly. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the early bird catches the worm. All, all those sayings are kind of pointing to, to busy the system up. And what we're pointing to is there's a way of almost getting more with less. Um, and it feels, like you're, <laughs> it feels like you're cheating to start with. It does feel like you're cheating in right? some way. It feels like, Ooh, it does. <laughs> is this allowed? And then you start to see that the results get better. Not only are you finding it easier, but the impact you're having goes up. There's a there's a profound shift in efficiency mm. when you stop doing the things that don't help. Mm. And I think that one of the biggest impacts, and this is a difficult thing to show people um, and for people to see because it, it's an, a negative. It's, like it's difficult to prove a negative. But when you stop doing the 80% of the things that aren't actually having any positive impact on your life or your work you get a lot of time and space back, mm. a lot of bandwidth back. And your ability to use that bandwidth, it's not just that you have more at your disposal, but you're in a relaxed frame of mind and you can use what you've got more creatively, more, more innovatively. You have bandwidth to actually track how other people are doing. Holy cow, that can make a difference. Mm. Not just to react to them or worry about them, but to actually track with them and to wonder how to support them. I mean, it completely transforms teamwork. It completely transforms leadership. But, you know, the 80-20 rule that is so common in business, I had not realized that 80% of what I thought about and 80% of what I worried about was not relevant to my enjoyment, my effectiveness, or what I created in the world. Mm. And when clients start to see that, uh, they just, when you stop doing what doesn't work, you've got more time to see what does. 
And there's something about this, you know, if someone was listening to this, that they, they might be going, well, yeah, that's pretty obvious. If you stop doing the dumbass stuff, you're going to get better results, right? What, what right. are you guys on about? What, 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 you know, this is not new news. This is Stephen Covey's been put, you know, blah, 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 yep. blah, blah, blah. So what, what is the bit that we're talking about that is the reason why you and I have, have gone down this course with these principles? Yep. Than, what, what's, what, what are we pointing to that's different in case anyone's thinking, yep. well, that's obvious? There's an, an insight a realization about how the mind works that as you have this insight, what doesn't work, what's not necessary becomes apparent. It drops mm-hmm. away. So, you know, I've been a longtime fan of Stephen Covey. His was the first book on self-improvement that made me think there might be something worth looking at in self-improvement. Mm. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, that's a long story. But the thing is, it's a lot of work to figure out the 80%. If you have to figure out what the 80% is, that adds 80% to your schedule. <laughs> you have to go away on three-day retreats. You have to carry around a big old planner or a complicated set of apps. When you see this, when you have the realization or an insight about how mind works and about the relationship between feelings and clarity of mind, the 80% drops away. I don't have to get up in the morning and decide what to think about. I have used the word barometer. It's like I have a, a GPS. I've got a feedback system, and I can tell if I'm going down mm. an 80% not helpful road, and it just doesn't make sense. It's like I don't keep my hand on a hot stove. I don't go down useless roads much anymore. Mm. There's an obviousness to it, isn't there? And it there is an obviousness. almost spontaneously sorts itself out. So rather than you have to task yourself to go, what's my important 20%, my least important 80%, rather than you have to do that mentally, as you say, mm-hmm. just there's an obviousness that just comes through. And, and the weird thing about the obviousness is, well, I suppose the definition of the word, is you can't work out why you didn't see that before, right? Exactly. And then when you tell <laughs> someone else, they go, well, yeah, right? Mm-hmm. But this, this, is, this is the... the, the the lovely thing and the slightly challenging thing when it comes to selling our work is right. this obviousness. So this, this realization base for, for the work because until people see it, it doesn't look like it's worth looking at. Yeah. So, so if someone was asking a question that they were listening to this going, well, this stuff's so great. Why is it not in the mainstream yet? Right. Yeah. What, what, you know, there's a few of you talking about this. That's lovely. What, what do you think stops this becoming more prevalent and, uh, being more in the mainstream compared to other approaches? Well, I think at some point there will be a tipping point that will change that. But the, I think the reason it's not in the mainstream is that it's such a fundamentally different way of understanding how life works and how the world works. It's fundamental. I mean, it's way down at the base of understanding experience. And so the misunderstanding of how life works has been encoded from the ground up since we were, you know, in the womb. And, you know, if, if a person's been blind uh, for life and their sight is restored, 
their first experience isn't whoopee, I can see peers and what cool boxes behind Molly on her shelf. The first experience is what the f- is that? Mm. Ah, help. I'm going mm. crazy. Mm. The input doesn't have any context, any meaning. And so seeing this, getting this understanding, having some realizations, looking in this direction is a fundamental shift in perception fundamental shift in understanding. And that simply can't happen at a surface level. We're not talking about changing, uh, you know, the curtains in your house. We're talking about changing the foundation. Mm. Uh, And it's available since it's what it's, since it's how life actually works. um, Just about, Anybody that sits down and looks and wonders about this is going to see the truth of it. But right now, it does look like it takes a certain time out. Mm. Not necessarily a long one, how much time is variable, but it takes a, a stepping aside and a wondering about the fundamentals of how life works. Otherwise, we're so caught up in our habits of perception that you just can't see anything new. Right. And, and it's, I think that's a nice way of putting it because actually the shift can happen very, very quickly for people. Yes. So it's not like you're excavating out your basement. You know, actually, what, you, you, almost in a moment you can see it. But it, it occurs to me, and I was too, and, you know, and, uh, looking in the wrong direction to see it. So uh, as we look more towards the output and the content of our experience, like, well, what am I doing with this? How can I improve this? What's my role in this? And looking more to what our psychology was up to rather than what creates our psychology, if you like. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how we keep missing it, I think. So it requires a someone to just temporarily actually press pause on what they think they know already on their current yeah. habits of perception and get a little curious as to what's before that or underneath yeah. that, whichever exactly. metaphor you want. And once you do actually and you have an openness that you can see it quite quickly and easily. I mean, yeah. it, it amazes me. I mean, my clients see it much quicker than I did. I was a slow learner on this. Right? That's my experience too. My clients see it much more clearly than I did because for one thing, I've, I've been looking for something like this for all, most of my life and I thought I knew what it was. <laughs> mm. So I kept seeing what I, more of what I thought I knew. Yeah. And my clients, most of them haven't, looked at this much and so they're truly looking for something new and by god they see it yeah so it it i think a lot of the western world well the world western world particularly is is conditioned to look at the result of what the experience is up to you know and and it likes something there's a lovely metaphor i can't remember who said it um that if someone's learning to swim and you chuck anything in the water that looks like it floats they'll grab it Mm-hmm. right? It's because it, that, that's tangible. I can hold on to this life preserver or this piece of wood or whatever. And just for a moment with our clients, we have to show them there's nothing to hold on to because they don't need anything to hold on to. Right. Because uh, they float. Because <laughs> they float, right? But they'll be grabbing around. And if you put anything that looks like a technique or a mental strategy in the water, met- mixing my metaphors, they will then grab onto that and go, oh, that's yeah. why that happened. Oh yeah. Exactly. Well, that's happened because we, we, we met in a nice hotel for two days, Piers, and I, and I felt good. I'm like going, well, no, it didn't, you know, yeah. <laughs> but they yeah. need to see that. They need to see it. And I think the other thing is 
intellectually getting this is the red herring. Mm-hmm. Uh, academically getting this is the red herring. Um, is, is what we've been saying all the way through this little conversation is you see it. Yeah. You get a feel for it. Yeah. You know, I, um, when I was eight or nine, I learned to ride a two wheel bicycle and balance was a really big thing for me. For some reason, it was an issue, a problem. And I tried to figure out cognitively Mm. how one would balance (laughs) I worked it so hard intellectually that I had dreams about my theories of balance going sideways and weaving back and forth imperceptibly, but very, very fast. Uh, And I would dream vivid dreams of how to ride a bike. And of course, none of that helped me ride a bike. Mm -hmm. One day, I finally just got a feel for it. Yeah. And this is something you get a feel for. And once you get that feel for it, everything changes. Yes. Yeah, I, th- I think that's beautifully pit. And you, you can't intellectually learn it. You just get a can't. feel for it and then it clicks. Yeah. So if, if someone, you know, a business person, a business leader, a business owner was sitting here and, and listening to this and, and thinking, well, would this be useful for me and my business, right? And, and let's just assume this is a, uh, a business person who has all the normal opportunities and challenges that any typical business person would. Well, what would you say? Well, I would ask if they cared about efficiency. Mm -hmm. I would ask if they're ever frustrated by the behaviors and patterns and uh, choices of the people around them and under them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I would ask if it looks to them like stress is an issue for them or others in their organization. Mm -hmm. And you know what? popped into my mind, I would actually ask them how it would be to uh, be better at what they do and be more joyful. Mm. I think joy belongs in this picture. Mm. You know, not, not as a fast company or Wired magazine sidebar about having fun at work, but as, you know, little kids when they go out to play and make up games, there's a joy in making up the rules of the game. Mm. And I think in business, we have this incredible playground. We're making up these amazing, intricate games. And it ought to be fun. It's, it's funny as you say that because businesses can see that as, well, okay, Friday afternoon, four o'clock, we'll have fun. And then yeah. it's back to work on Monday. What now, a waste of fun. <laughs> but what we're saying is, no, 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 no. You can have fun while doing the most, complex or challenging of tasks um you know that it's it's not well you know joy or right fun or um and it and again i mean there's another podcast i did earlier with someone uh we talked about that and how actually he as a business owner has moved from thinking it's all about the results all about the shareholder value to actually enjoying the journey with his staff Mm -hmm. right and with, with them collaboratively. Um, and they're not having fun for having the sake of having fun. They're just right. finding it. It just more. is fun. It just <laughs> is fun. And guess what happens to the results when you do that? Yeah, they go up. And they when something up. doesn't turn up, you recover really fast and you learn really quickly. Right. And, and the way the business world is moving, the commercial world, the organizational world with all the, the uncertainty and the change and the challenge of the technology and social and political, all that thing happening, mm-hmm. right? Yep. 
you know, the, relying on that uh, traditionally developed academic, educational, conceptual mind, um, and not really respecting this other stuff that occasionally comes through when you have a new idea mm-hmm. and, and you feel at peace at work or joy, mm-hmm. thinking that's just luck. Yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> like all the innovation, all the fun, all the all the happy stories about great moments in business, those are the exceptions. And it's like, well, actually, that could be the rule. Mm. Mm. That's really the potential here. So it sounds like we're painting a, a lovely utopia, right? And, and I, I'm always conscious when we're talking yeah. like this that people be going, really? You know, come on, guys. I, I mean, I know, I know you two get this because, you know, you're, you're peddling your, 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 your stuff. You've drunk the Kool-Aid. Yeah. Um, I, so I just thought to finish off, would there be any, anything where you, you've had an example of someone who was kind of skeptical to this or even cynical to this and, you know, someone that's not, in, not into this stuff yeah, yeah. has had, had the seeing and now see it differently? Have you got any little stories on that we could finish on that might be nice for anyone sitting there thinking, I'd never get my boss to agree with this, you know? <laughs> I actually do, you know, my husband of all people. Oh, right, nice, nice. Um, I and I have I have never uh, I've never talked to him about this. I mean, eight years. I, I may have, in passing, made some derivative remarks, but I've not tried to sell him this Kool Aid. Uh, it wouldn't go over well. He's an independent thinker, and I have a great <laughs> deal of respect for his ability to do to be in the world. He happened to go to a training with me recently, though, and he went to the first few days, which were open to the general public. And he's, he's definitely not a, uh, he doesn't have a woo-woo bone in his body. He's an architect. He's owned his own firm for 50 years. And just about every other day, he comes home and says, I've got to write a note to Ken and Robin because that was just so phenomenally helpful. Mm. And mm. he's seen that... Well, one particular anecdote, he had something happen. You know, there's all kinds of rules and regulations and expensive hoops to jump through in architecture and planning. And a, uh, a city planning office had just thrown a new hoop in front of a client. And it was going to be really expensive. And it looked nonsensical and wasteful. And my husband, Miles, started to get ramped up and irritated and pissed off. Reasonably so. Mm-hmm. And then he had a moment, he said, but it's never about the thing. It's never, how I feel and my options are never defined by the external event. And he took another look and he said, well, he saw three different solutions and ways forward, which are beyond my pay grade. Mm. Uh, Had a lovely rest of the day, solved a problem for a client, went forward and didn't, you know, blow an hour or more being upset, did not pick a fight. He's wiser than that anyway with the Mm. planning commission. But instead of that being an energy sink, Mm. a dead end, uh, an obstacle, it just got incorporated into the, like the new game plan. Mm. Just got folded into what do we do now? Okay, what do we do now? The thing I think that he's seen is not only that um, his experience and his options are never defined by what happens externally. There's an 
but that there's an infinite reservoir of new ideas and new places to go. And that reservoir is not dependent on what happens in the world. Mm. So things can continue. Roadblocks can continue to pop up and you just reach for another idea. And your, your well-being and your options are never limited in that, in that very practical way. So after 50 years of running his business, he then comes across that insight that there's an endless reservoir and infinite ideas and solutions to get through. Yeah. That, that's, that's, that's pretty great. And that, he's, you know, he's, he's always been pretty chill. There's a way in which I think he has understood this in his bones more mm. than I have. Mm. But now it's just taking it to another level. Mm. It's like, and his is a small business, but even in a small business, if he's in a bad mood for an hour, Mm. And his six employees get touched by that. Mm. And they start second-guessing their choices. Mm. They, you know, there are permutations. And you take a large organization, and you have a leader who's in a bad mood for an hour, and that can cost you a million dollars easily. Mm. It's, it's the invisible effect of this that is often just seen as, that's just business. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah, that, that's just what it is. That's just change projects. I, I, I work a lot in the change arena. You know, well, that's just what happens in change. Yes. Well, no, 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 no. Somewhere, someone was having a low quality of mind moment. You know, instantly. You know, and the 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 the, the ripples of that of, of why we're three months late in this program. Mm-hmm. Right? So we are amazingly running out of time. It, the time just seems to distort when I have these conversations. So if there was one. 15, 20 second soundbite you wanted to leave the business world, uh, Molly, uh, what would it be? You're leaving a lot on the table if you don't take a look at this. Brilliant way of putting it. Brilliant way of putting it. So thank you so much. And if there's a way that people were to, you know, interested to know more about what you do, uh, what's your website and things, Molly? Uh, shaboominc.com. That's S-H-A-B-O-O-M-I-N-C.com. Lovely. Thank you so much. It's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you, Piers. It's been fun. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please reach out and leave us a review and a comment. If you want more info, check out makingchangework.co.uk or Piers Thurston on LinkedIn.